L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. Well, HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. So start saving with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit RightRug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Our guest historian today is Stacy Schiff, author of a number of historical works. Her book, Vera, was a Pulitzer Prize winner, and she was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her book, Saint-Exupéry. And, of course, her book, The Witches, was one of the works referenced as we researched and wrote on Obscured Season 1. Her list of awards and publications is enough to make any historian jealous, so I'll point you toward her full bio on the Unobscured website if you want to learn more. I had a chance to sit down with Stacy Schiff this past summer, and we had a fantastic conversation. So without further delay... Let's get on with the show. This is the Unobscured Interview Series for Season 1. I'm Aaron Mankey. I'm Stacey Schiff. I'm the author of The Witches, um, a narrative history of what happened at Salem, to which I came because I was surprised by how little most of us really know about what happened in 1692. Um, Salem witch trials seem like a shorthand, but none of us really understands to what it is a shorthand. Um, I had written a book about Cleopatra before this, and it was the same kind of dynamic of just a name that a name brand, something that everyone recognizes without really having any grasp of the actual history. Well, when you talk about the misunderstanding, I think the place to start here is almost the most obvious question. What was a witch in 1692 Salem? 
And you're right. That's the question over which we stumble because our definition, the 21st century definition of a witch, is not the 17th century definition of a witch. So, so a witch at the time, witchcraft is a biblical construct, and a witch at the time has a concrete reality because she's mentioned in the, he or she is mentioned in the Bible. And a witch is understood to be any figure, male or female, but primarily female, who is in league with the devil and who works his or her magic by means of little imps or a menagerie of little animals who can do his or her bidding. Um, and that was something that was imported to the colonies from England. It was an extremely rampant, extremely common concept in the, in the old world and actually throughout the old world. Although by 1692, the idea of witchcraft has pretty much fallen out um, in Europe. The colonies are in a little bit of a time warp of their own, and they haven't quite got the message that this this the witchcraft concept is a little antiquated by now. Um, but you see it throughout the colonial record. There are witches really from the very beginning of New England. And the only difference with 1692 is um, is the prosecution, is that you get this um, feverish set of accusations and you get a relentless prosecution. In earlier cases, um, there had been tremendous leniency. Often someone who brought in a charge of witchcraft was accused of lying and was sent home with a whipping. Um, Things were not necessarily taken seriously. And in 1692, obviously, the opposite happens. Going back to these differences in our perception, there's how we imagine it to be and there's the reality of it. How do some of the common symbols of witchcraft that we have today, like flying on a broomstick or black cats, connect with the Salem Witch Trials? Or do they? One of the one of the most interesting to me pieces of this is how the flight gets into um, the entire panic, the entire delusion in 1692. There had not been... Um, there had not been flying witches in New England before 1692. Um, and it would seem, and there were not flying witches in English witchcraft either. So this is really a, an import from the continent. And it would seem that we get that idea um, from a narrative that Cotton Mather, one of the most influential ministers at the time, includes in an earlier text of his. And he writes about a, a Swedish witchcraft epidemic in which a little girl um, is on her way to a satanic meeting. Two, two young children, in fact, set off this witchcraft crisis. And a little girl falls off her broomstick. He writes about all these wonderful details, which we will then see transposed to Massachusetts. But he writes about things that had never before happened in New England, a satanic meeting um, in a meadow at which people sign satanic pacts and to which they fly on sticks. Um, and that is really, there were French flight, fl- French flying witches before 1692. There had never really been English flying witches. So that's pretty, that pretty much seems to be where that aspect of it comes from. Black cats, I spent a lot of time, I live with a black cat, so I spent a lot of time on black cats. And they seem to have been the devil since antiquity. They've, they've had a bad rap all along. And if you look at the Salem testimony, the court testimony, you see a tremendous number of cats. There are translucent cats, there are gleaming cats, there are black cats, there are red cats, they're all over the place. And it, 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 does, it does seem to be, it's a seductive creature. It's a female-seeming creature to many, many people's minds. And a black cat will detach itself from the darkness without any warning. And, it's un- and a cat is unpredictable. So there's that sense that you can caress a cat and be rewarded with scratches. And all of those things seem to add up to something that people are very uncertain about and often taken aback by. So I, there, there are many number of theories as to how black cats get get wrapped up in the witchcraft. But yes, that is a constant from day one. We talk about uncertainties and, and the unpredictability of the world around the Puritans. Um, Tell us about how they viewed the natural world around them and, you know, in relation to to how they viewed God and, and their mission of this thriving Puritan culture. You know, you have things like the weather or um, the economy or politics in the world around them. And how do they view all of those as in relation to their their safety or their faith? 
everything you just mentioned is in flux, essentially, in 1692. So you've just you've just given a great overview. Um, they've just a very bloody and very tragic war has, with the Native Americans, with the Indians, as they would have called them, has just ended. Mm-hmm. And pretty much everyone um, in New England at this point has lost a friend or a relative in that conflict. And a new war with the Indians is about to start. So there's a sense of being... Um, under assault, certainly, and under siege, which is very, um, which very much goes to the heart of Puritanism. I mean, these people have come to America because, precisely because they feel persecuted. Um, they are, the, on the one hand, watchful people, always watching for the second coming, always watching over each other. There's a great sense of community, and they are in a hostile world. I mean, it's not for nothing that they refer constantly to the howling wilderness. And that howling wilderness is, when you begin to look at it, um, a pretty frightening place. We have wolves wolves barking and wolves howling in the distance um, at all times. We have, obviously, the the Indians vanishing into the bushes at all times with a lot of of subsequent trauma for the colonists. We have an economy that's in tatters at this point. And I think not um, unimportantly and actually fundamentally, there's a political um, hiccup at this moment. You're, in 1692, the colony is between governors. Um, no one knows. They've overthrown the royal governor um, in a really sort of preview for the American Revolution in a military coup a few years earlier. And they don't know if they're about to be punished for this. And they don't know what kind of government they can expect and what kind of governor they can expect. And it's in that little interregnum that the witchcraft breaks out. So there is this sense of being on the precipice, watching for signs. And, and this is a, a religion which gives itself very much to watching, making meaning of any little incident, which, of course, means that when you see something you can't explain, witchcraft is a very good explanation, um, watching for this new, what this new government will constitute, watching each other, which, of course, also ends in accusations of various kinds, um, and trying to make sense of this very, very hostile, difficult world. You talk about the wilderness, and I think what I appreciate about what you brought to your approach to the Salem Witch Trials is that it's easy for a lot of people to to stay in Salem in the Salem, you know the town and the village and, and leave the focus there but but we, what you're bringing up is that there's this there's an outer conflict going on especially to the north in, in you know, the frontier of Maine on the edges of what people feel like is their safe space and that conflict is is quite literally coming back into Salem Village. I mean, some of these refugees, right? Exactly. I mean, you have, you have both that conflict beginning to approach because um, because the, the border with the Indians is getting closer and closer, and you have this influx of refugees. And there are any number of the accusing girls whom we know have come from families in what is today southern Maine um, who had known Indian attack or who had lost parents in Indian attack. I should also just have mentioned, by the way, the darkness. And this was something that struck me over and over when reading the court testimony, the prior court testimonies. These people lived in a pitch black world. And when objects move and, and make sounds in the dark, you know, we, we know what that's like. And, and this is a world in which really you can't see the shapes. And shapes very often resolve themselves into something else altogether. Um, and that sense of really being on edge and having the inexplicable, you know, right before you and not knowing what danger you should anticipate is very raw. And you see a lot of it throughout, even things which don't concern witchcraft. You see a great deal of that, people sneaking into basements, people not being able to make sense of a creaking beam, people wondering, you know, how how the roof has suddenly flown off the, the meeting house. Yeah, well, I, I, I just keep thinking back to what you said about black cats and how they do bleed into the, the blackness of the night or a dark room and just step out 
whenever they want. And, and it's kind of systematic or symbolic of everything happening around them. My favorites were always the court testimony. This is prior to the witchcraft years of women who would report that they'd come home at night and they'd crawled into bed to find another man, not their husband, sleeping there. Right. I mean, just <laughs> anything could happen because you couldn't see in the dark. Yeah. Right. And also the, and the length of the winter was unpredictable. So there was the additional question of do we have enough firewood? Do we have enough food? Are we going to make it through the winter? This is a you know, this is a very barren climate in many ways. Um, some winters in the winter before 1692 was particularly severe. Some winters were very, very horrible. Um, how are you going to make it through? Do you have the firewood it's going to take? Well, you know, you talk about the darkness and the unknown and the propensity to look for excuses or to place supernatural blame on things. The colonists seem to see the devil everywhere around them. What was their view of the devil? Who was the devil to them in 1692? The devil is – I spent a lot of time on this. The devil is a very um, – there's a very abstract and inconsistent sense of the devil at this point. There's an enormous amount of devil talk, both from the both from the pulpit and among the people. There are lots of just in day to day discourse. There are lots of mentions of the devil and go to the devil and you know you are a devil and your wife's a, especially your wife's a devil. Um, no one really seems all that certain who the devil is. He has, however, um, a very palpable presence. And the sense that evil is lurking, obviously, is very close to the to the mind of many of these many of the villagers um, who are at the heart of the story. Ultimately, when the witchcraft testimony, when there will be a lot of witchcraft testimony, you begin to see that people have a very different vision of who he is. He's sometimes a tall man. He's sometimes a short man. He has a cloven foot, or he doesn't have a cloven foot. It's there's a very vague sense of who this sinister creature is, but he's very palpably there. Absolutely. Years before Salem, we have the episode with the Godwin children. Uh, can you tell us about how the event with the Godwin children um, shaped the response, like the, that initial response when, when Betty and Abigail begin to have these similar fits in the home of a minister? It would have been almost impossible for Samuel Paris, the, the father and uncle of those two girls, not to have known intimately of the Godwin case. Um, first of all, the, the Godwin case is included in an earlier book of Cotton Mather's, so many people would have read of it. And I mean, it was, this was sensationalist reading. We would all have you know, known of this in a way. Um, and he was friends with one of the, he, Paris, was friends with one of the ministers who had observed the girls in their distress, with those children in their distress. And it was his congregation which was involved in Boston. So it would have been a story that he was um, on quite close terms with. The symptoms... Uh, in the Paris household and in the Godwin household are very similar. Um, he's very Paris is very slow to mention the word witchcraft, but the word must have been at the tip of his tongue because there's such a correlation between the two. So in the Godwin case, um, you have a couple of afflicted children who begin to um, to writhe and to roar and to gallop around on imaginary steeds and who can't seem to pray and can scrub a clean table but not a dirty table and won't do their chores. Very similar set of symptoms. Con Mather will step in and try to make a sort of clinical study of what is happening with those children. Um, and in the course of that, a, a washerwoman and a laundrywoman in Boston is accused of having bewitched the girls, and, and she actually will hang on Boston Common. And that's the most recent um, prosecution for witchcraft before 1692, and one both in terms of the symptoms and in terms of the fallout that would have been on many people's minds. You mentioned the symptoms. One of the things that I've noticed through my work on my other podcast, Lore, um, the, some continental, you know, you, you talked about the broomsticks and the flying witches and how there were differences between uh, Europe and England and then, and then the new world here. Um, the symptoms seem to be interpreted differently 
whether it's on the continent or in England or the New World. You know, so we have the events of Loudun in France, where a lot of nuns at a convent went through a lot of the same symptoms of convulsions and seizures, but that was viewed as possession. And it seems that here in Salem, same symptoms, but viewed as they are being afflicted by a witch who's outside somewhere. And why are there differences like that? Is that an Anglican versus Catholic difference, or is it something deeper? It's not, and it's something that even in 1692, people had trouble parsing mm. one from the other. There's a little confusion as to where witchcraft ends and possession begins. And you see it even in the work of Cotton Mather, where initially he says it's either witchcraft or possession. Um, the bottom line, and to, and to put it baldly, is that in possession, you are not complicit. Um, I mean, sorry, you are complicit in a witchcraft. You are not complicit in what's happening. So a case of possession would have been preferable um, in many ways. Um, you see Increase Mather, Cotton Mather's father, also a minister, grappling with this, trying to basically differentiate the two. They sometimes, they in a way, bleed into each other. The difference is that with possession, you don't have a guilty party. And in witchcraft, you have a you, you can point an accusing finger at the person who is causing this distress. The similarity with, with Ludon is interesting because, um, again, you have a case of women living together in a very cloistered, very sheltered environment, very visually monotonous. I mean, there are a lot of similarities with a winter, a very white winter in the cold in Salem. Absolutely. Or Samuel Willard's experience 20 years before Salem with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Knapp. Knapp. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Who goes on to marry a man named Samuel Scripture, which I have always Heaven, taken right? pleasure in that. She's, she's actually a fascinating character because she's clearly so enjoying this attention. Oh, yeah. And I loved reading about her because there were so many hints anyway of what must have been, it must have felt like for the Salem girls in the sense that you could dismiss the women around your bedside but ask for the handsome men to stay to observe you in your distress. So, yeah, there were many advantages to you mm -hmm. know, some of these afflictions. Let's shift gears from witchcraft and perceptions of the world and talk about the trial for a bit. Um, in your estimation, who were the people who were really propelling the trial forward? What were the, the cultural forces who were pressing them into this sequence of events? You can't have this kind of a prosecution without an inherent belief in the existence of witchcraft. So for starters, you have a religious base here, which obviously encourages this kind of a, an examination, if not prosecution. Um, everyone has his reasons in this case. You have local reasons, and then you have larger cultural reasons, and you have political and religious reasons. Locally, you have a minister, and this would be Samuel Paris, who was at odds with his community, um, was divisive by nature, was bitter by nature, um, had had every reason to fall out with certain families, and in this case, is probably not is probably happy to encourage something that is going to um, somewhat purge the community of, other, of some elements. Um, in a larger way, however, what you really have is a set of ministers and a set of civic authorities um, who, for different reasons, are really working in lockstep, working hand in glove. Um, each of those groups has a tremendous amount to gain at this very sort of precarious political moment from a witchcraft prosecution. And you can see that most clearly, I think, with Cotton Mather, um, the young minister, the young sort of great hope of the New England ministry, and William Stoughton, who's the chief justice and the lieutenant governor, who really is the driving force behind the trials and was probably the single person who had the power to slow them down, if not stop them, and, cho and chooses not to. And in fact, when the court, when the witchcraft court will be shut down in the fall of 1692, he will throw a very um, public temper tantrum because he feels that he was, as he puts it, on his way to ridding New England of these creatures, and he's been stopped. Cotton Mather or Stoughton? Stoughton, sorry. So Stoughton is really the figure, in, insofar as one 
is tempted to lay blame at someone's feet, I would have, alas, finger William Stoughton, who leaves very little, uh, there's very little paper record for Stoughton. It's, it's shocking how little there is. It's also interesting that after the trials, when he clearly is the driving force and the most devout and most pious of, he really feels he's on a crusade against this witchcraft, um, he will remain in political power. There will never be a sense of questioning him. There will never be a, a sense of sidelining him. He'll remain in power. Um, but you see it most clearly because these, um, both of these forces, the, the church and the civic authorities, are trying together to prop up a new government. They have William Phipps, the new governor who's arrived. They have um, not endeared themselves to the mother country. And they're trying to prove they're on a law and order campaign. They're trying to prove um, that they are, can adjudicate their own affairs, that they can um, they don't need any help from the old country. There is not utter chaos and disorder in the colony, as has been reported. And in Stoughton's case, he's really trying to rehabilitate himself. He's a He's the ultimate political survivor. He's been a member of many different governments. He had helped to oust the previous, very prominently had ousted the, the royal governor. Um, and this is a case where he can really prove his mettle. Um, Cotton Mather will go to him just as the objections to the trials begin to surface in the fall and say, why don't I write something to flatten the fury, as he puts it. And um, when that book is published, which we know as Wonders of the Invisible World, um, it will come out as if, as if Stone had actually asked um, Mather to write it. So you begin to see a little bit of the, uh, the of the game these two are playing together. In the most damning statement, I guess, um, in answer to your question, after the trials, um, Cotton Mather will write, not, not for publication, that he felt afterward that um, these events had really um, helped God. They, Christ had got more disciples. God had was more closely embraced. This had awakened the sluggish. It had filled the pews. And the devil had got precisely nothing out of the deal. It doesn't mention, of course, the innocent lives that were lost in the process. Absolutely. The cost of all of that. Um, and a lot of that began in the meeting house in Salem Village, um, sort of that pre-trial examination that happened before we moved to Oyer and Terminer in Salem Town. But what do you think the atmosphere was like in that meeting house? Especially, you know, the, that first, and talking to Richard Trask, he said that first day, there were, there were maybe 550 people living in Salem. And um they, they were standing out. They, it was a packed house, standing outside the windows in the cold, watching in. What do you think that was like? If there were 550 people in Salem, and I, I think Richard's exactly right, there were probably more than 550 packed into that space, which yeah. I think is 26 by 38 or something. I mean, it's tiny. It's mm -hmm. a tiny little space. Um, and we know from there are two extremely good accounts of those early examinations, one from a man whose wife had come to try to defend herself, and the second from a, from a former minister who'd come back. Um, we know it was pandemonium. We know it was utter chaos. Um, everyone is packed. It's cheek by jowl. People are sitting in the pulpit. People are gathered together in the gallery. The place is, is really overflowing. And everyone is very is packed in very tightly against people whom they suddenly are wondering, um, whom they're wondering about, whom they're thinking maybe the guy next to me is also guilty of this witchcraft. And meanwhile, you have these convulsing, screaming girls who are crashing to the ground and you know, assuming these acrobatic postures, um, and who are stopping the trial. It's a very stop-and-go process, not trial, stopping the examination. It's a very it's a very slow and, and, you know, plodding process because you have to wait until the girl who's just fallen lifeless into the trance revives herself before you can continue. Um, and the girls, according to one of these accounts, are allowed to prowl around the room. So they're sort of canvassing the room, occasionally chatting with people, occasionally breaking out in new convulsions, occasionally screaming that they've just been bitten or pinched again. Um, you get a sense that the court reporters couldn't hear a lot of the time. Um, 
center and are having trouble keeping writing things down because either they can't hear or events are proceeding so quickly. And often we'll then resort to simply summarizing what was heard as opposed to trying to write the actual words down. So I think the, the short answer is it's dark. There's this sense of smudged darkness. It's very dark in that meeting house. It's very, um, it's, it's very, very sort of cracklingly um, fright, frightful. Can I stop in the middle of a sentence? Um, it's crackling with fear. The, yeah, the former minister who comes back talks about how the hairs, you can see the hairs rising on the backs of necks with people who are just, you know, they're in the presence of the supernatural. It's terrifying. It's a charged place. Completely. Ready. Completely. Uh, obviously, the examinations um, involve bringing people in for the first time, especially that first day, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, Tituba. And, and as we go along, the accused begin to make confessions. Why were these confessions so important to the witch trials? The confessions are hugely helpful because the confessions, as confessions will, um, tend to coincide. So they coalesce around um, a very similar and familiar story. It's not, um, it's very clear that when people are put into prison, having denied all charges of witchcraft, and then come out, um, they tell a more and more grandiose story. And you can see this happening with people who are examined several times. The, at first, perhaps they had been in the service of the devil for a year, and then when they, the second time they were deposed, they've been in the service of the devil for six years, and so has their sister-in-law. And then the third time, they've also been to a satanic meeting where the bread was red, and by the fourth time, the bread is even redder. So there's this snowballing sense of detail and of involvement with people. Um, the answer to your question really is when you when you get toward Andover, Salem witchcraft ultimately will will migrate to Andover. And by that time, all the imagery has really changed. It's less about the enchanted hay and the satanic cat. And it's more about this, um, this diabolical meeting to which people have flown from all over New England. And there, most of the testimony is utterly on point. It's extremely, it's as if everyone compared notes while in prison. Everyone has, everyone talks about precisely the same sound to call the people to the field. They talk about the same person presiding over this 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 dark Sabbath. Um, they mention, uh, you know, exactly the same guest list of who was there. Every detail corroborates each detail. And that's obviously because they're being told either by their friends in prison or their family who think they're guilty or the ministers in charge what to say. Why weren't there doubts about spectral evidence? It seems looking back that that should be easy to dismiss. I think the easy answer is, or I think the, the simplest answer is this. Cotton Mather says, Cotton Mather is, is called on several times to opine about the legitimacy of including spectral evidence, evidence in the courtroom. And he always is a little bit ambivalent, and he's always sort of speaking out of both sides of his mouth. But the bottom line is this. Spectral evidence should really not be taken at face value. However, when there are physical manifestations of evil or physical manifestations of harm, then you must believe the evidence. So what you have are these girls who are claiming or whoever is claiming that they have been bitten, pierced, pricked, whatever, burnt, um, and who have the wounds to show it. So in the courtroom, you have a girl who's suddenly bleeding from the mouth or a girl who can show the mouth mark, the, the, the bite marks up and down her arms. That's really hard to deny. And moreover, you have um, really ear-piercing screeches. You see these girls assuming postures that I think most of us would, be, would find terrifying. So in the presence of those convulsing girls, I think it was very hard to say witchcraft wasn't being practiced. And 
to fail to subscribe to the evidence, you felt, I mean, it's very much an emperor's new clothes situation. Everyone else is saying, oh, I see the moth flying around the room, which is clearly the specter of one of the accused. And you think, I don't really see it, but I guess everyone, I, I guess I must, maybe that piece of lint in the air, maybe that's the moth. I mean, I think it's very hard to be the dissenting voice and say, I don't see what everyone else claims to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's actually interesting is that when the first three, um, when the first three women are brought in, um, there isn't a, a hint of spectral evidence until Tituba starts telling um, her elaborate and kind of kaleidoscopic tale. Well, when Tituba starts to talk, she brings in brand new elements. And a lot of it, I think, harkens back to what we talked about earlier with the animals. You know, there, there, there's a strong um, uh, subtext of you know, birds and creatures. And, you know, the dark man falls into that because at some point I think he's described as, as more like a, a hairy beast who walks on two legs um, as one of his many descriptions. Um, why, why do you think for her in particular um, the animalistic qualities were so important? You know, we know so little about Tituba that it's very hard to say where that comes from. It has been hinted at, it's possible that she was fed some lines. Remember that she's the only person of those three, the only woman of those three who's a slave. Hmm. Um, which, and we probably lived in fear of what she had to, of, of reporting back to Samuel Paris in whose household she lives. She's clearly been with the family for years. She clearly loves the children. She lives in, in close quarters. She probably slept in the same beds as they. Um, she may have been told a tale. She may also have been a tale teller. I mean, there may have been a great, you know, she might have been sitting around the kitchen shelling peas and telling great stories. We really, we really have no idea where that comes from. Um, We do know that she was, that someone goes to see her in prison before she is interrogated. So it's very possible that she was, you know, that there was some discussion of what she was going to say. It indeed, it indeed is she who mentions the, she's got yellow birds, she's got red cats, she's got a black hog. It's very colorful stuff. And yes, the furry creature with the wings and the long nose who sits by the fireplace. I mean, it's, and, and as soon as she says this, things take off at a gallop. I mean, the very day um, that she testifies, men begin to see two laborers on their way home, see this unearthly creature by the side of the road in the moonlight who suddenly transmogrifies into three women. And the next day, two men will have visits from spectral balls of, you know, fire in their beds who clearly were some of the defendants. So immediately there's this sense that everyone, um, the the spectral world begins to manifest for everyone. You mentioned the jails earlier, this idea that going into the jail... A lot of them, their descriptions would magnify when they came out. What were the conditions in the jail? I mean, do you think that was a motivation for them? The conditions in the jail were really deplorable. Um, New England jails had not been built for long-term stays. Um, this was a culture that essentially dealt with malefactors quickly and effectively. No one was really meant to live in a jail the way these people ended up staying in these jails. Um, nor were the jails built for this many people. I think there were 60 people in jail by May and 120 or so by the fall. Um the Salem jail is described as a suburb of hell, and the, and the Boston jail was described as a grave for the living. So I think there you have it between the two. They're tiny spaces, um, unventilated. An, an earlier prisoner had talked about the fact that he couldn't breathe for the pestiferous stink, as he puts it. Um, the air is fetid. There are armies of lice. And to add insult to injury, um, in colonial New England, you paid for your keep in jail. So you paid for your straw, you paid for your food, and you paid for your shackles. And in fact, we have jailkeeper's accountings. One of the surviving documents is a jailkeeper's accounting of how much people were in debt to him for the shackles to which they are, which, by which they are attached to the walls. 
And the shackles were important for a witch because if a witch had no use of her arms, she couldn't work her, she couldn't work her magic. She couldn't work her. Her powers were limited. So um, it seems that these people were shackled fairly effectively. And Richard Trask has suggested that they were sh- that they were shackled in a way that where the shackles couldn't be removed except by a blacksmith. So mm. these were not removable irons. One of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of the witches who confess in these trials are allowed to live. Why is that? When you confess, you generally confess um, in a way where you accused others. So you were very useful to the prosecution. Also, the, the, the point of confession was that you could then somehow um, push the narrative forward in some way. So you're reentering, um, you're, you're serving the purposes of the court beautifully if you do that. Um, it is unclear what was going to happen to the confessors, however. It's not... They, many of them thought they were going to ultimate, going ultimately to be executed, but they were certainly being used by the prosecution for what they could then relate. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a certain point here in the summer, not and fairly early on, where it's very clear that it was smarter to accuse than to let yourself be accused. And there's a rash of confession and an accusation at this point, which almost seems as if people were trying to just get ahead of the game. And the interesting, the the upsetting part, I think, there is often that some of those people are pointing fingers at their own family members Hmm. and often at in-laws or daughters-in-law or things like that. Tell me about George Burroughs. He seems to have such a powerful narrative arc. Burroughs is someone for whom, you know, when you live, you live in hope that documentation will surface one day. Burroughs is sort of the great white hope in that respect. Burroughs is the ex-minister who leaves the community on bad terms and is as much a hero in his community, in his new community in today's southern Maine as he had been a persona non grata in Salem. He was clearly a very um, stubborn and difficult man and possibly an abusive husband with, when he was in Salem. Um, stories of how he had mistreated his wives will trail him even when he, when he moves to Maine. And he's a person who, to whom um, one of the earliest um, girls will make mention as the ringmaster here, as the ringleader of the entire um of, the, of, the, of all the witchcraft. Um, he fits the role in the sense that he's, a, he's clearly a figure of some authority, he's clearly a very learned man, and he's powerful. So he is the, and he's called a wizard at the time, which is with two Zs, which I always find very charming. Um, but it's interesting that in this epidemic, which is so much being um, propagated by women, a man requ- acquires the, you know, takes the central role all the same. Um, and it's Burroughs who, um, who's the, the one suspect for whom we really, in a way, can't account. Many, in many of these cases, we can see why people were accused. We can find long-term family feuds. Many of the women who were accused um, had been accused years earlier, so the charges just resurfaced slightly, um, cooked, slightly cooked a little bit better. Um, with Burroughs, there's this terrific um, vexed history with the community. There seems to be a certain amount of... Um, getting back at him by women who may have been friends with his ex-wife, with his dead wives. In the case of Burroughs, people mention ghosts of the dead wives, which no one really talks about ghosts, and no one really differentiates specters from ghosts. So it's a little bit hard to to figure out how the two are related. Um, But he's clearly someone of whom everyone lives in fear, including the authorities. Even when Cotton Mather will write up his choice cases of witchcraft later, he will refer to the other suspects by name, but he will refer to Burroughs with only with the initial B. It's as if he can't even name his use the full name. So there's clearly something. He's also a Harvard man. I mean, there's just, he's one of them. So it's an interesting case of um, the ministers having to prosecute one of their own. Clearly, odd man out, but someone with a very similar background as theirs. Yeah, uh, Emerson Baker in our interview talked about how all of the magistrates 
involved in the trial were they were men who thought that they would probably go into ministry at some point. You know that they were they were all very deeply devout, and and I, I think in his words he said probably wrestled for the rest of their lives with with um, questions of doubt as to why they didn't go into ministry. And here they were, you know, forced to be wealthy businessmen and military leaders of the community. Um, do you think that there was something there where, where they viewed Burroughs? I mean, he was, from what I can tell, top of his class in Harvard or, or at the, near the top. I mean, he was a smart man. Um, and do you think maybe these ministerial wannabes in the magistrates viewed him with a little bit of jealousy? It's conjectural, but I, I think it's something a little bit different. I think with Burroughs, Burroughs goes to Maine um, and protects his parishioners in a very small community against a hideous and very savage Indian assault. And he's forced to do that because the Massachusetts authorities have essentially cut off um, their – they've stopped protecting the, those communities because they don't have the funds to do it and they're trying to cut back. And I feel as if there might have been a piece of residual guilt there for having left those communities unprotected. Um, Burroughs would have had every reason, would have had every reason to chastise them for um, kind of cutting off those settlers who were really at the very forefront of the, really at the edge of the frontier there and are getting no protection. And he'll write the one document we have of his, which is really extraordinary, is an account of an Indian raid on the community where he's, um, where he's protecting his parishioners in, inside a, um, a barricade. And, you know, he writes of it in biblical terms. It's an astonishing document in which he proves to be a very courageous and ingenious man. I mean, the other interesting thing about Burroughs is that he's clearly, um, he's very strong and he's very canny. And a lot of the testimony against him will be uh, testimony to, about his somehow magical strength. How did he lift that barrel? How did he fire that very long musket? How was it possible that he heard that conversation from that distance? How did he get to be two places at once? So in other words, the kind of things that you might have admired in someone who was on, with whom you were on good terms, um, which are suddenly suspect when you've fallen out with that person. There's a point in which um, Burroughs and Martha Carrier are referred to as the, the king and queen of hell. What was the significance of that that label for them? That's an expression of Cotton Mather's. I think he kind of makes that up, to be honest with you. I don't think there's a king and queen of hell. Um, I don't know. I I think that was just, you know, Mather trying to make the whole thing a little bit more dramatic. It's not in the, the typical cosmology I, of I've the I've never Puritan seen that world. anywhere else, and no one else really picks up on it. I mm. think it's just Mather trying to make a good story. He's a really good writer. He really goes to um, great lengths to paint Martha Carrier in on the most wretched terms. And, you know, he, Cotton Mather would have been at the trials, and he bases his portraits there loosely on the testimony. If you look at it, you see he's taken some liberties with the testimony. He's left out a great number of things. He's left out things that were to people's credit. Um, he's injected things that didn't that weren't actually in the testimony. And my sense is that what, for whatever reason, Martha Carrier rubbed him the wrong way, and, and that's why she gets promoted to Queen of Hell. Burroughs is able to recite the full Lord's Prayer, and this was significant, right? Very significant. It was understood that a witch could not recite the Lord's Prayer. Um, Burroughs on the Gallows is apparently a tremendously um, moving and and troubling sight because he is, in fact, a man of great presence, and he clearly knows how to speak, and he deli- he's delivered sermons that many of these people have heard. And here he is in that same, it sounds, deep voice, um, reciting the Lord's Prayer. So here he is um, 
doing something that a witch was understood, which would be proof, in fact, that you were not a witch. And the crowd apparently at that moment has a moment of doubt and begins to surge toward him as if to um, somehow bring the proceeding to an end, bring the hanging to an end. And they're pushed back by the authorities, which does indicate that it's the upper echelon, really, that has that's holding the, the animus for, for Burroughs in some way. Um, that's one of those moments where you begin to see hesitation building, and then it's tamped down again and where it will remain until the fall. Mm-hmm. Isn't it at Burroughs' execution that Mather, Mather's present, Cotton Mather, and, and turns and speaks to the crowd and kind of explains how this is a good thing, right? We think it's Cotton Mather. It's a little bit unclear. I'm pretty sure it's Cotton Mather. And yes, he explains that they're on, again, that they are, this is God's work. Um, Cotton Mather's um, got a tremendously good argument, not at that moment, but just generally for why um, one should let this run its course and why one should subscribe to it, which is that um, it's further proof that New Englanders are the chosen people. God would not have let um, the devil, that the devil would show up where he's hated the most. So this is proof that not only that the second coming is at hand, but that um, New England is special and it has this special mission. And that is why it's repelling these invaders. Moving to after it's all over, um, it, it, I think taking some of that element with us too, that idea that we have this vision for the Puritan New England culture that needs to be preserved. We start to see dissent about the trial. Um, things like Governor Phipps prohibiting the printing of the publication of stories about it, and obviously Cotton Mather is writing about it afterwards. Um, what does it tell us about the trial aftermath that these authorities are they're sort of suppressing what has happened? Well, it would seem to indicate that there was um, there, there seems to be an admission of guilt in that, doesn't there? Mm-hmm. Um, it should be said that yes, Phipps. Um, stops anyone from publishing anything about witchcraft, unless, of course, his last name were Mather, because two Mather books are published after the prohibition, after he shuts down the presses. Um, there's deafening silence all around. And it's almost it's almost a, a conspiracy. And when you look at when you begin to look at the record, um, the diaries have been purged from those years. The men, the, the um, congregation's book, as you know, um, Paris pulls out those entries for those months so that we don't have those entries. The court records are missing. Even Samuel Willard, who's one of the, the great Boston ministers, we have his compendium of sermons, which is an enormous volume, but missing are the sermons from that summer. Um, so there's clearly a sense of shock to the system and a sense that um, of regret and I think of tremendous guilt at what has happened. There seems to be a realization that no one really articulates until Samuel Sewell, one of the judges, finally does. But um, there does seem to be this, um, you know, could we cover this up as quickly as possible and could we make it go away feeling afterwards? And that's an attitude of the the leadership and the people involved. Do you feel like the just the the normal everyday person echoed that feeling of, yes, let's move on, let's not talk about it? There's a curious... Um, thing, if you if you look at the reparations requests, which are much later, early 18th century, you know, in the early 18th century, it's, it's understood that some of the people who've lost relatives um, in this misfortunate summer should be reimbursed for their, you know, for their hardship. And the requests for monies often omit, they can't seem to mention the word witchcraft. It's almost like the recent unpleasantness. Um, so you even see there that there's a, there's almost an inability to grapple with the, the hideousness of the entire event. Um, there's also a funny phenomenon, and, I, and I'm not sure I can explain it, but very often you see widows of people who hanged and widowers marrying after after 1692 or, or people who had been families of the accused marrying. 
And that could be that they had suffered a very similar trauma, but it may also be that people were not willing to go near them, that they had somehow been marginalized in the events. Because you do know that the the belief in witchcraft continues long after 1692. People still believe in witchcraft. They just don't believe that this prosecution was legitimate. Um, so that sense that those people bonding together may also indicate that there was, um, that at every level, people just didn't want to talk about this. And mm. that if you had somehow been involved in it, you were part of a, of a somewhat toxic community or you there was some taboo attached. Richard Trask um, allowed me to go into the archives with him, his little room full of amazing things, and showed me the, I believe it's the church's notebook, not the minister's notebook, but where where um, years later when Reverend Green is minister of the church, um, Ann Putnam, one of the four, one of the main accusers, wants to become a member. She wants to become a covenant member of the church. And in and, and a church where so many people in that community had lost people because of her accusations. And uh, it's a sobering thing to see his transcription of her confession and then, you know, her signature underneath that. And um, I can't remember the date on that confession. I, I want to say it's 1723. So, so, it's yeah. quite late. Yeah. It's quite late. And and if you look at that confession and you look back at some of the earlier, there are, there are two earlier confessions. One is from some of the jurors who, re, who, re, who very much regret what has happened, and the other, of course, is Sewell. You begin to think that Ann Putnam may be copied from their homework. There's a certain similarity of wording. Uh. But everyone essentially, I mean, she says she was essentially led astray, right? It's a little bit the devil made me do it kind of excuse. But she does indicate that she was, she doesn't address how she came up with these spectral images. Um, she simply says that she was misguided and, and deluded. Hmm. When did the last imprisoned witch walk free? I think January. I'm actually not sure. So nearly it. Is that true? Tituba comes out in January. Tituba is hard because nobody wants to claim Tituba. You can't leave until you've paid your jail fees. And no one is willing, it seems, to pay Titubas until later. I think she's in jail for a year altogether. Would, would that have fallen to the Paris family to pay her? I don't know what the what the law would have been for a slave. Yeah. They certainly didn't want her back. Um, and we have very little sense of where she could have gone after that, by the way. I mean, it's interesting because she's so completely at the heart of this um, and therefore would have been very much spoiled goods. Um, but I think most of the wives, most of the people who are, um, most of the husband's will actually petition to get their wives back late in the fall. It's harvest season. It's really important that the wives be ba- there to help, you know, can the preserves and, and get the house in order. And I think most of most of those women are released in October, November. There's this uh, there's this perception that I have of Paris where he, you know, he we all know he comes into town. He's He spends almost a year negotiating his contract, I think, and he's, he's really picky about all of this, especially the firewood and... How, you know, he wants it delivered to him instead of him going to pick it up and elements like that. To have the witchcraft begin with symptoms in his own house and then one of the chief accusers be a slave from his house, there must have been a sense of um, shame and needing to make up for, like, to, to atone for that through through the months that the trial took place. I would add to that, by the way, that if you take that one step further, the girls in the house or the kids in the house would have been under tremendous strain to see their father being so badly treated by the community and so much at odds with the community would have put such, I mean, it would have been so difficult and so embarrassing in so many ways. And there would have been, when you begin to see 
clearly they're trying to say something when they begin to convulse and twitch and and complain of, of bites and pinches. And you wonder, you know, the stomping of the foots of the parishioner, feet of the parishioners as they came by to complain to their minister or other these continued very acrid negotiations that would have taken a toll on the family. Um, yes, Paris goes through a long period where he can't apologize for what's happened. And the entire New England ministry essentially bears down on him after 1692. To essentially say you need to apologize, and he he delivers those kinds of apologies, which are basically, I'm sorry if I did something that you think is objectionable, um, and they will it will take years for them to get him essentially to leave the to leave the parish and to issue some kind of statement that in some way um, is reconciliatory. Did those come at the same time, leaving and apologizing? Um, it's one is is one is slow after the other. He's a very difficult man, mm. um, and it I don't think it's any coincidence that 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 these kinds of things break out in the household. A couple of questions to wrap things up. You know, we might tend to look back at Salem and sort of sneer at them for hunting witches, right? That you know, believing in things like black cats and witches on broomsticks. But are we really any different today in other ways? You know, it. it I feel like it takes a different form. I feel like at the base of this, there are a couple of things which are just constants in human behavior. I mean, first of all, there's this deep-seated sense of causality of, you know, what what caused that? Why did the, the roof fly off the meeting house? Why did the ox fall sick? Whatever, you know, why did my computer just freeze? Um, there's got to be some reason for this. And very often the reason for that involves your neighbor or somebody you know or the person who, who was just overly nice to you. And a lot of these are people who actually paid calls on their neighbors and then for some reason the goodwill gets converted gets converted to poor to ill will. Um, so there's that constant sense for um, a victim, for you know someone you can lay the blame upon. Um, and I think there's a, there's an overreaching need to believe that there's another world out there. I mean, really, there's this sense of well, it had to be. I did everything the same way I did last time. So why did the computer do this this time? You know, why did the pothole suddenly appear in the road? Um, so there's that searching for some explanation which is not at hand. Mm. And sometimes religion provides that explanation, and sometimes it doesn't. And obviously, in this case, one went directly to religion for the explanation because it, witchcraft more than anything, or the supernatural more than anything, will explain everything. I mean, you can explain any number of mishaps, you know, lingering doubts, glinting, you know, accusations, anything with a, with a witchcraft accusation. It doesn't have to make sense, but you can explain it with no, it. No, and that's the beauty. That was the beauty of spectral evidence. It was my word versus yours, and I've seen it and you haven't. Um, and yes, it certainly doesn't have to make sense. So you've written what I think is a beautiful retelling of of the story of Salem. It's one that I highly recommend people read. Um, you soaked it all in. You spent years on this. It's, it's almost unfair to ask you this, but if there's one thing that you feel like you want people to know about Salem, what is it? You know, I think it may tie in with what we were just talking about. Somehow that sense of our our ability to suspend reason and subscribe to a delusion. I just feel as if we are all of us at all times prone, if not tempted, toward that behavior. And it's really important to kind of, you know, stop yourself for just a second. There's so much retailing here of bandwagon jumping here and retailing of someone else's narrative um, without any original thought. And that is how the that is how this goes off the rails so quickly, really, is that no one is willing to raise his hand and say, but wait, have you considered? Or but wait, that doesn't make sense. And when finally the first person does do that, it's under... It's very dangerous. It's Thomas Brattle, and it's extremely dangerous. He can't sign his name even to that document, but it's an act of, of utter courage. And I guess that would be my 
my takeaway would be how important it is to be that person who says, um, you know what, maybe we should look at this through a different optic because the reasoning here just really doesn't hold up. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode of Unobscured was executive produced by me, Matt Frederick, and Alex Williams, with music by Chad Lawson and audio engineering by Alex Williams. The Unobscured website has everything you need to get the most out of the podcast. There's a resource library of maps, charts, and links to Salem document archives online, as well as a suggested reading list and a page with all of our historian biographies. And as always, thanks for supporting this show. If you love it, head over to applepodcasts.com slash unobscured and leave a written review and a star rating. It makes a huge difference for the show's growth. And as always, thanks for listening.